Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Okay, listeners. So anybody that knows me knows that I'm not, how do I say this delicately, quite a fashionista. And it's not because I don't have great respect for fashion designers. I do. I have tremendous respect for them and the artistry that goes into it and having to be so on the cusp of what people are going to want and the amount of productivity and the pressure that it takes to be that creative talent over so many decades. I do. I think it really boils down to just not ever being a size two and never being able to fit into a sample size. It always felt like that world was never open to me. So maybe I didn't embrace it. Maybe it was my fault. I don't know. But that all changed about 15 years ago when I met Kate and Laura Malevi. And at the time, these were two sisters that had just launched their fashion brand called Rodarte. They were out of Los Angeles, and they came into my office where I worked at the time at Vanity Fair. And I remember Laura commenting on the things that were in my office. And one of the things that was in my office was a Barbara Streisand album, Je m'appelle Barbara. And she had signed it to me, and Laura was just freaking out. From that came this conversation about cinema and music and the history of fashion and design. And when I was looking at them talking, I'm like, wait, they're in, they're in T-shirts and they're wearing those moccasins that I wore in high school. You know, this they look like me. What's wrong here? <laughs> so anyway, that formed a kind of uh, lifelong friendship that I have with both Kate and Laura. And what's really exciting is they're here on Present Company today. So we're going to hear about how it all started, their ups and downs, some sobering truths about the fashion industry, particularly what it's like to be female in that industry. So sit back and relax. And this is Rodarte. All right. I am here with two very special people that I'm very excited to talk with and interview. Kate and Laura Malevi, the creative team behind Rodarte. First, I'm going to introduce Kate so you can talk and say hi so everyone okay. can hear your voice. <laughs> hi. And now I'm going to introduce Laura. Hi, I'm Laura. <laughs> Does that sound at all different? Because to, to me, you I basically know. sound we, the we same. We don't sound very different. I think Kate has a little bit of a deeper register than me, but... Well, the truth is you probably won't be able to really tell us apart. At least from what I'm told, people say, you know, when they call us or whatever, they always say, I can't tell the two of your voices. So anyone that can, I don't know. Kate will talk a little longer than I will. That's the way, that's how you'll know. Is that generally what happens in real life too? I think so. Yeah, true. Well, it depends on how much caffeine Laura's had, and she has had a lot today, so we'll see. We'll see. (laughs) Well, I first met you guys, I think, in 2010, and you had already uh, gotten started, so to speak. You had done your first collection, and for those of um, you that don't know, that dress, your first dress out of that collection made it into the Costume Institute, correct? And then from that, you were anointed by Anna Wintour, and who's editor-in-chief of Vogue, and all of the trappings that came with that and everything after that. But when I met you, what I was so struck by is that you look like I looked, which I loved. (laughs) You had the same, those moccasins that I wore in high school. You were in jeans. You liked flannel shirts or a white shirt. It was very simple. And I related to that incredibly. And someone that's always, for myself, I've always been intimidated by fashion. I never quite got it. Part of that was because I never thought I had a body to wear fashion. That was always for someone else. That was a language I didn't speak. So I didn't really feel like I even needed to learn it because it would never be anything that would be part of my life. And meeting you two 
it changed all that. It changed the way I look at clothes. And I'm not underselling that because that's a fact. <laughs> and also the the reality that we had so much more in common that had nothing really to do with the fabric or right. the beading or the details. But then I came to learn had everything to do with the fabric and the beading <laughs> and the details. <laughs> yeah. um, but and perhaps the the perfect like pinnacle of all that coming together was Black Swan. Right. Yeah. Maybe if if I think about yeah. at the time the movie yeah, with right Natalie Portman yeah. and the and the tutus and the costumes and all of that. But what I'd like to start with today, and then I know we're going to go off the rails in the most beautiful way, mm-hmm. and I can't wait. <laughs> so I have a lot of things to talk about. But I want to talk about the. I want to start by talking about that moment when you guys knew you had something, right? You had this collection. You sent it to Cameron Silver, who's so very specific to Los Angeles. He just had this little sliver of a store Mm -hmm. that he resold vintage couture, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, But only those who knew knew, really. And from that moment to your first trip to New York and showing the dresses, can you just tell me about that? Well, it's so interesting because... You know, I think about it. We've said recently when we kind of retell this story, now it almost seems so surreal because it really is the craziest story. I mean, essentially we both finished – I'll try to make it as short as possible. We had both finished uh, Berkeley. We went to University of California at Berkeley, and um, I had majored in art history and Laura was an English major. But we decided while we were at school we wanted you know, to become fashion designers and – we left school, came back to Los Angeles, and essentially Laura got a job waitressing, and we were kind of, you know, I, I sold my record collection over at Amoeba and to get some extra money to buy fabric, and we kind of put together these 10 pieces of, you know, a small mini, mini collection of 10 pieces. Now, keeping in mind, we didn't really know much about the fashion industry except for you know, our love affair with designers, costumes and films, that we knew, but we didn't really know the inner workings of it. And Can I stop you right there? Oh, yeah. So when you're at Berkeley yeah. and when you're studying art history and you're studying English, and I know both of you started out maybe wanting to be doctors or science yeah. and quickly to... <laughs> I did cross my mind for two years in high school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. took a right turn in the yeah. opposite direction. But what made you think about becoming fashion designers? Because that's not something that is, A, easy to do. You're uh, Honestly, it's easier to get into medical school than to be successful in the fashion industry. So what right. was that well, moment that you guys thought, oh, wait, this is what we're going to so do? It's so funny because I think that it was, out of all the approachable arts to us, that just seemed like something that we could do. I don't, we didn't, we didn't go to school for it. That's, you know, for sure. And we, we tried to take a costume design course at, Berkeley, and that didn't last for more than two weeks. Um, And I really believe it's because when we saw clothing, I feel like we saw it as a way of self-expression and storytelling. And it seemed as um, it seemed tangible. It wasn't a world we were from at all, though. You know, our our mom didn't raise us going to Neiman Marcus and seeing all the designer brands. And we weren't in Los Angeles where you would go to Barney's on the weekend. Like if you experience a lot of people talking about fashion and their experience of it, they have um, people tell stories about going to those stores and seeing high-end fashion and how it made them dream. But that was never part of our lives. And I think that what we did was we saw it through cinema. We saw it through Hitchcock films. Our mom raised us watching old Hollywood films. And, you know, we watched so many different, you know, genres going into college. And that informed our vocabulary for fashion. Also, I mean, my earliest memories, I mean, for me, I would say the first things I ever, you know, from a very young age, I drew elaborate fashion drawings, like to the point where my mom was, she says now, she was like, you know, I was somewhat surprised and fascinated when I would find these drawings you would make. And I remember being very interested in clothes. And I think where we grew up in Santa Cruz, it was definitely a place of experimentation and individuality in terms of how people express themselves and the different characters that you would see. If anything, I think that 
the landscape of our youth was so theatrical that I just remember being at the boardwalk and just wanting to watch people and the way that they would communicate who they were about with, with you know what they would wear which wasn't you know necessarily fashion that you would see um you know runway you know designer fashion but it was definitely the fashion that really really inspired me and then later on there just wasn't a, as you were saying there's not like a real we didn't come from an upbringing where there was this clear cut kind of okay well you, if you want to become a fashion designer, you go to fashion school. I think we were both coming from a place that was more, you know, um, our father was an academic and he had basically, I think, kind of set up the scenario where he wanted us to go and learn as much as we could in a general sense. So I think when, by the time that we were at Berkeley, there wasn't necessarily a clear career path for either of us, but it was more of... You know, we would take our. I was taking art history, English classes, uh, film classes. Laura was doing a similar thing, and um, at just at one point, I remember we always had our own secret language. So as close as we are with other people, I think we always had somewhat of an interior world. And I remember at one point we both kind of around the time that we quit, we had signed up to take a costume design class through the theater department there, and we quit about two weeks into it because it was very clear to us that, you know, it wouldn't be just our say, you know, as costume designers, we had to think about, you know, the director's vision. Mm -hmm. The lighting director's I think they talked a lot about the lighting director in the theater. They did actually. That lighting director was getting star Yeah, he got star, or she She. got star (laughs) billing because they kept saying, well, the color you choose will be different on, on stage. And I thought, well, this just doesn't sound like you're going to have your vision come to life. And that's probably the first time I connected to the idea of wanting my voice to be the one to take us through or Kate's voice or a combined voice to be the thing to get us to the end. Mm -hmm. Well, interestingly enough, I do think that that class was a pivotal class because since then we've obviously done things in costume design and other things. And um, for me, costume design is one of the great arts and I'm so enamored and you know, fans of so many costume designers. But I think at that point in school, what was interesting was the idea of authorship and Laura and I saying, well, we need to be the captain of our own ship. So if anything, what we were kind of, you know, we are going to go and decide what the story is. Who are the characters in our world? You know, what's the story that we want to tell? And that was an interesting and important discovery because at that point we said, well, it's not that we won't revisit this, but I think we want to be designers, because it'll be in under our own name, which is what we've done. Instead of even going and working for another house mm-hmm. or working under the, um, you know, we've ma- remained independent for all this time. But everything we create is ours. So take me back to that those eight pieces, right? You, mm-hmm. you, right. You worked. You sold your albums. You you create these things <laughs> on your kitchen table at your parents' house, right? This is a definite. A it was a pretty crazy time. Pipe dream, yeah. right? You <laughs> go, sure. you go to Cameron. Cameron yeah. says, "Hey, these are actually something." Well, it was funny because we, I just knew about Cameron because I was so obsessed at that point with fashion, and yeah. Laura was too. That he was, you know, someone like you said, if right. you were in LA, he had the shop, and we both figured, well, he, but he would... was such a huge voice for fashion. Right. It, it was a, it was a, a really amazing moment where unique things were coming up, and it was a little little less corporate than it is now. So, mm-hmm. um, Cameron had a very strong, powerful voice that people listened to. So, but we all were anyway. For anyone that doesn't know, he has this amazing vintage shop where some of the you know best vintage you can mm-hmm. find, and if you want to see like museum you know pieces, you know he has them. So we thought, well, we should write him a letter and see if he'll. Look at the, the small amount of things that we've done and give us some insight because he's seen so many things. So he'll have knowledge about, you know, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. Or, And we wrote him a letter and he said, come down to the shop. And we brought in our, you know, small collection. And he literally just looked at it and he said, you know, I think you guys need to go to New York with this. And we were thinking we had never been to New York. And we thought, well, what does he mean? He's like, I'm, I'm going to call a few of my friends, write a few people. I think you should, you know, buy a plane tickets and get into New York. And so we said, well, if we're going to go to New York, we should try to um, write, you know, different magazines. Maybe we can get appointments. And then we came up with this idea. So I said, okay, well, we're going to hand draw 
and we made these little mini armoires with the paper dolls and you get all the outfits, you know, and I hand did each one, which now obviously if I was doing that would be like, we're going to do one set and then we'll print all the others (laughs) instead of hand doing each one. You know, it was so crazy and we sent them out. And by the time we get ready to go on this trip with this collection, we haven't heard from anyone. So we flew into Boston because of the snowstorm. We had to take a train from Boston and, you know, when when you land at an airport, you have to then get to the train station. Mm-hmm. But there were no cars to get you anywhere. So I remember having these big wardrobe boxes, mm-hmm. kind of like the ones that you would move your closet with mm-hmm. when you move a house. So they're very tall. Mm-hmm. Um, had he, having to get those around in Boston mm-hmm. through the snow. Yeah. And then we ended up in Penn Station with these boxes and had to get them <laughs> to our friend's apartment. I don't know how we did it. That part of the story is gone because now you can call an Uber and request an SUV. I don't know what we did at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was all, you know, and our friend, to put it in perspective, you know, she had like, do- you know, she would be doing archaeological digs in Turkey and come back with three new dogs. And like the her apartment was filled <laughs> with like, you know, you couldn't move anywhere. There's so much stuff. And we just spent a few days and, you know, Laura and I, I, in truth, the city was very big to us. And I did realize in that moment, you know, we both say we really had that classic New York experience where you come to New York and you're like now overwhelmed what? by the infinite possibility of the city, but also just scared. And I remember we didn't really leave her apartment that much. We were, you know, called people. No one responded. So we kind of just decided toward the very end, this has really been a disaster. We pretty much had used our whatever life savings we had had managed to have after college, which wasn't saying much. But I think we gave up. You know, we had saved to go on a trip to Italy or something and that we had Mm -hmm. thrown away and— we we just were thinking, what were we thinking? And then we got a phone call by someone from Women's Wear Daily, and they said— Nan, Nan D'Souza. I don't yeah. remember if you remember her. She said, come down to uh, Women's Wear Daily. We're, we want to you know bring your stuff down. We're going to look at it. And I believe someone in there had gotten one of those paper doll sets. God, I'd love to have that armoire paper doll set. She said— um, come down and then we did and we went into a room and one person came in and looked at our stuff and the next thing I knew they said we're going to bring in Bridget Foley who at the time was the head of Women's Wear Daily but also W Magazine and then we're going to bring in Bobby Queen and they came in and within you know literally 30 minutes of talking to them they asked us a lot of questions more questions than I probably was asked in that moment really about you know stuff like garment based they were so curious about everything and then they asked us about ourselves and at the time I didn't realize that they were essentially interviewing us but we had never been interviewed mm-hmm. so we didn't know and then they said can we take some photos and they took us like upstairs and we took photographs you know they put some makeup on us and we took the pictures <laughs> and they put a model in our clothes and even then I wasn't registering much what was happening and you know, we went back to our friend's apartment, and the next day we got a phone call, and it said, go down to your local, like, news I think Cameron shop. called us. Or, yeah, they must have I called think... Cameron to interview him or something mm-hmm. because he called us. No, so, I don't know who called us, but someone, someone called did. us and said, go down to your the corner, news co- corner market. And we went down there, and especially back then, like, Women's Wear Daily in New York was everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. huge. Um, and I always make this equivalent for anyone that loves movies. Getting a Women's Wear Daily cover is like getting a cover of Variety. So imagine like we basically— no, you just you just pulled the my version oh, yeah. of the story where you skipped the punchline. Oh, yeah, so we forgot. go down to the corner market mm-hmm. and our pictures on the cover of Women's Wear Daily. That's right. Which is why it was so crazy. So they'd given <laughs> us the cover. And we had gotten the cover of Women's Wear Daily— the day before New York Fashion Week started. Now, keep in mind, Laura and I didn't even understand what New York Fashion Week was, really. We mm-hmm. knew that there were shows in New York, but we really didn't have... We were so green to all of this that we didn't even understand. And I remember Cameron did call us, and he said, you know, this is a really big thing. And and when I brought up Variety, the equivalent is, is that, you know, for people that aren't advertising in the magazine, we don't have a proven track record, it was like getting this cover was crazy, and we then – so we knew it was special in the moment, and we pretty much got on it. But at that point, the trip was up. We yeah, got on a go plane. Home. We hadn't really accomplished more than that. And we get back to Los Angeles, and Lisa Love, who was the West Coast editor at Vogue, had seen that cover. And she said, 
And we got a phone call from her office and said, I want to meet, you know, these two girls from Pasadena, get them in the office. We went and saw her. We walked out of that office, got back in our car and got a phone call 20 minutes later from her office saying, Anna Wintour is going to be in L.A. next week. She's going to come see you and look at your clothes. So that's another thing to consider, which is the first nine pieces of clothing that we ever made was were then seen by Anna in real life. She came and we t- we actually said, well, we can't really have her come to our house in the middle of Pasadena with her, you know, cats and dogs and pe- everyone's like mom dinner at the time her grandma was in the front house uncles i was like we're gonna have to um probably ask anna cameron could we maybe show our clothes in your space it's more yeah and he let us and um she came and saw that small you know grouping of uh the pieces that we made and you know it's interesting because she's such an amazing you know force in fashion and and um i would say that she did give us at that time the best advice we ever got and the most true advice, which is she went through, she looked at the pieces and she said, well, you know, do you have any questions for me? Cause you, you know, clearly we were really young, just out of college and obviously just kind of like, we didn't know what was happening. This was this huge thing. And I remember saying, or one of us said, you should we move to New York because the industry is there. And Anna looked at our clothes and she said, well, I can tell what you do is really personal. And she said, so keep it that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's pretty much the tenement of how we've approached every everything that we've done. Um, and it really was so in touch with who we were, you know, interestingly enough. But for her to tell us that at such a beginning stage. But I always say everything we've ever made is pretty much on display because the first things we did had some sort of public um, – you know, I don't know. Presence. People saw it yeah. on some level. And, you know, we were at the very beginning, or not the beginning, but the internet had was starting in fashion. So it was a whole kind of combination of things. But I look back at it now and I think it's a really wild story. I mean, well, it's, it's really just, crazy. It's just wild in terms of how quickly it happened for you guys mm-hmm. and yeah. the uniqueness of being not – in L.A., well, Los Angeles, but really Pasadena, even right. a kind of sleepy suburb of right. Los Angeles uh, added to it and not coming from any kind of um, – you weren't the daughter of, no. you know, famous – some someone steeped right. in Hollywood sure. or all of that stuff. And what's so interesting about it is the trajectory after that is that you guys lived up to the expectation, which also is something that doesn't – always happen. Right. You you lived up to your potential with the CFDA award. And I can't even remember. There's been so many things and all the collabs. And I remember seeing you guys did a thing with Mocha. And then you yeah, did a right. thing with the opera. Then you did the collection with Target, yeah. which I still have the striped, <laughs> the best uh, striped, striped shirt, shirt ever. Yeah. And I still have that dress. Uh, it's the easiest thing to pack and wear at any time, uh, which Perfect. I love. And how many collections? Endless. I can't even Endless think about. Endless collections at this point. Right? I don't know. If it's been almost 15 years, that's at least 30 collections. Mm-hmm. It's a Thir- lot of clothing. Right. 30 <laughs> collections. So for you guys now, you've remained independent, mm-hmm. right? Have you ever thought about jockeying for one of those giant jobs to go do Celine or YSL or I'm just Calvin Klein or any of those big things. Have you ever thought about that? I I feel like there's the part of us that is always excited. You always want someone to think of you that way. The hard part is knowing that you will be doing work for someone else. So there's the two parts of it. The very independent spirit that we have is the thing that has made us run for so long and has always driven us to make what we do. Um, But I think that those opportunities, it's very difficult as women in this field. There aren't very many women designers or people that are heads of of their own companies. Um, And you, you, you do feel that over the years. I feel like we get to talk about it more now. And it's very nice. Mm-hmm. And um, But at the beginning, you felt a little bit as though that wasn't an option. Now I feel like it's happening more and, and people are aware of the, the discrepancy between um, who is in the leadership positions. And that is just something that you realize maybe affects the way 
you make things and why you are always going to be so fiercely independent or why we push so hard for our own vision because I really feel like we have been given an amazing opportunity and it would be a shame not to say, well, this is what we have to offer given this opportunity rather than to say, hey, we can just do what other people want you to do or what other people might make. We realize that the only way we would be happy creating something and to get through the process of making a collection, which is very intense work, um, it the only way to feel fulfilled is to really follow your gut and to say, this represents me. So on some level, I feel like it's all these psychological things happening at the same time, making you not understand or not want something, but at the same time want something. I don't think that's an answer, but... I mean, I think it's a question mark, it's a to question be honest mark. with you. <laughs> you know, there's probably not one desire in the world if they came to you and said, we want you to design Chanel. Well, you're going to want to try that. I mean, yeah. you want to, I mean, at this, so I think that there are certain, you know, houses and mythologies that, you know, would be so, you know, intriguing and definitely ones that you would, you know, maybe jump the chance for. I think... As Laura was saying, it's the perfect storm. Obviously, you'd want to be at a place that was the right match. But at the same time, it's like you gain you, – you get one thing. So I guess that there's the design question in my mind, which is that we – you know, every collection that we've done at Rodarte and for, you know, how many collections we've done, I don't know if it's 30. But it's Laura and my storytelling. It's our ideas. We design everything from the clothes to the jewelry. There's not design assistance. It's all us. So I know when we do – when we did a – um retrospective at the National Museum of Women in the Arts, I was like, we've created all of this. And yes, we have incredible artists that we work with and amazing, um, you know, whether or not it's someone that is doing the makeup for the show or someone that's doing the embroidery for the dressers or sewing. So we work with incredible people, but it is spearheaded design-wise from Laura and I. And I feel like there's something very empowering about seeing that and when I was saying that idea of authorship um that that's us that's the legacy that we have it doesn't belong to anyone else and I think that until I guess it belongs to other people when they get the if they get the clothes and they make it their own and it becomes something Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. but I think the flip side is there is also maybe a curt something that sometimes people don't understand about our industry and one of the things that Laura was kind of speaking to which is that you know, there is a, a definite, definite discrepancy. I think someone came to us a year ago and said, do you realize you're part of only like female-led and female-run businesses in our industry? And there is a huge um, – I think that there – in design, there's a huge um, – There's the myth of the male genius. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know how we can get that over to the female side <laughs> for all the women creators, but it, it's been a – it's a it's a struggle, and um, I think it's an uphill there's battle. There's a different language that's used about the way that you create than maybe your male counterparts, and that is something that it's so interesting to see happen. And we've had it happen in magazine articles, and I would call our PR and say, "Are they seriously using this language about us? They wouldn't use that language about someone else." And you you see the words like crafty, or and you right. go, "Why are these so gendered?" And it makes you think about the history of of artistry and, you know, just, you know, the entire world of how how your place has been set for you and what you're allowed to achieve and how much of your mind people will appreciate. Um, so, then, so I think it just made us want to push the boundaries a little bit more. But I think the not easy answer to it is, is that there's probably less – There's there should be – how about this? I'd much rather have said no more times than I've been made the offer which means, in my opinion, where we are with our career and what we've done, there's a total discrepancy. And I think that there in our industry, it's a lot to do with the idea of the authority that comes with what people um, put place and how gender plays into that. Because, um, you know, a lot of times with fashion design, you're in a job that basically says season to season, this is where I feel we're going. This is the journey I'm taking you on. Mm-hmm. But I and, feel like it's different now. It feels different. Well, there, it's opening up. And no, so- that, that, the point of fashion feels different. It, it's more about, yeah. it doesn't feel like it's about the newness anymore. I'm, it's just we're in a new, a new space with it. It's very big. Mm-hmm. And it, it, the re, the amount of people that say to to us, even if I meet someone that wants to be a designer, it's uh, it, it's almost like an entertain. It's almost feels like entertainment business in a strange way. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about that. That leads into one of my questions of is of Rodarte and your relationship to Hollywood, right? Because as you said, from it's a very from your origins of you spending uh, and you've talked about this before, but like a year watching horror movies and you're growing <laughs> up watching yeah. um, Hitchcock films yeah. and having that being very prevalent in in your household. And I know from my personal experience with you, there's no greater joy than going to watch a mindless action movie, whether it's John Wick or, you know, our hero Vin Diesel in any of the Fast Fast and Furious franchises. And I remember at one point you were talking about you know, designing a new thing, a new costume for Toretto. For, oh, yeah. for Vin. You needed a new cross and a new tank top. Yeah. <laughs> but you have this high, low appreciation for the cinematic arts. And within that, you had a certain muses that were not models. Sure. A lot of people oh, yeah. use, you know, or historically, you would have a uh, a society lady that was your muse, but you guys always, it was always actors. Right. Uh, yeah. Specifically. Can you talk to me about why that was? And specifically, again, I can go even further Kirsten Dunst, yeah, Natalie sure. Portman, Brie Larson, Kira Knightley. Yeah. They so come to ones. mind, right? You know, I, I, I tried to think about this one time because I thought, what makes it so fun for us to collaborate with women? that are in the acting field. And I thought, well, you know, they're expressing themselves very artistically. They're, and the ones that appreciate our clothes or like our clothes are usually, they're, they're, they're dreamers. And we can connect to people like that. And sometimes they feel like they can become your friend. And in those instances, in the, with the women that you've just named, we have built friendships with these people. And that has just made the process of creating with them even more thrilling. But I think... We just love cinema. I always love film. I grew up loving film. You know, it's it's a, the modern form of expression and art. And when we were in Santa Cruz when we were young, I just remember going to the theater and seeing something like Troop Beverly Hills or, you know, The Lost Boys and having that be a understanding of a world outside of our own. So it was just a way to dream. And even at that point when we were seeing Hitchcock films, that was so fun because he was shooting in Northern California a lot. So, you know, Vertigo was shot in a lot of places we used to go as children and the birds. So things like that I could relate to, but then see the kind of the effects of what it was like to create a world. And it just always stayed with us. Um, and it became a way that we, it's almost like if Kate was studying art history in college and I was studying English and you put the two together, you would have some form of uh, visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, and it's also, you know, it's so cool because I think that in a way fashion really, you know, whether or not a lot of people think that, you know, if they're not, you know, following kind of fashion designers or certain um, fashion shows and all those things, oh, well, they don't really have, you know, maybe I'm not so connected to fashion or don't understand it. But in reality, most people are actually much more connected to it than they would ever even understand. So, Essentially, it's just kind of like, you know, if you go to a museum and you're looking at old portraits, something about what they're wearing is intriguing to you. And it makes you want to know, like, about that time period. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing about actresses in Hollywood and films or TV and all those those um, that medium is that most people interact with that in some level. So for a lot of people, if you if I say, oh, I design at Rodarte, which just might happen all the time, I just say, you know, if someone asks me, what do you do? And I'm just telling them, I'm trying to figure out, like, oh, I do this. They, if they don't know what it is, if I say, oh, you know, I made Natalie Portman's Oscar dress one year, then they're going to say, oh, you know, they connect that way. So a lot of times what's kind of, I think, really thrilling and fun about working with different actors or in in that medium is that you get – you get a larger dialogue with people. So it's not so much for me. Sometimes people try to make it biz- like about the business. Well, if someone wears it, does that mean you're going to sell 20 dresses? The truth wasn't in high fashion. Not really. What will really happen most likely is that it just brings – I think it broadens your dialogue with people that might not necessarily know about that one show you did. But then they know, like, I saw that dress on this actress. And then they kind of connect to your work that way. Um, although there are instances that when someone wears something and it sells it out, obviously, like, 
Um, that happens a lot too, but I'm just saying that's not necessarily a reason you're doing it. Mm-hmm. I think the motivation. it's more, yeah. yeah. Well, I also want to talk a little bit, you did that great dress on Millie Bobby Brown yeah. for the opening oh, of, yeah. you know, the premiere yeah. of, of Stranger Things, yeah. which was great, uh, which was younger for you guys, which yeah. I thought so fun. was awesome and, and fun to do. Yeah. But in terms of the Oscars, yeah. what is the level and you've done it several times. Yeah. The pressure and you, you know, the collaboration. <laughs> the... I'm just reliving, you know, it's actually, it puts me in this place of this year. Um, Fashion Week overlapped with the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, well, this is the first year in my entire life, except for one other year that I probably won't watch it, which was very sad for me as someone from Los Angeles. And... And I thought there's no way I would even think about trying to do a dress for the Oscars mm-hmm. because that is a, a it's literally like um you know make Ocean's Eleven watching a trail of from start to finish a piece you know an object getting to its right place for two weeks you know you you literally over you know there's a lot of emotions that go into the Oscars there's a lot of people there are a lot of opinions there are a lot of um. You know, and it's clothing, so you have to fit it and make it look good and, you know, make it look good on a red carpet, and it's a lot of pressure. So I think it's just one of those things you have to treat treat as if you're caring for a a newborn, uh, like a plant that you're trying to grow, like a, an orchid, <laughs> or and really make it happen. Yeah. And you don't want to overwater it, and you don't want to put it in too much heat, and, you know, it's all the things that could go wrong, but and you really have thing. to oversee it. And since we're from L.A. and our team is, you know, we're not we don't have a celebrity dressing team. That means Kate and I are usually involved in getting that dress. Oh, I would say the final moment. One of the reasons we didn't even, you know, this year, because we knew that we were going to New York to do a show and there was all this momentum behind that. And we were in the thick of it and we would have some conversations about Oscars and Laura and I. Normally, even if you don't get the opportunity to do an Oscar address, you normally, as a designer, I feel like try. So whether or not it's sending out a sketch, you know, someone wants to see sketches, meeting with someone, even – okay, so that's your starting point. And if you get to the second stage, you keep going in stages. But you at least try for that. And we've never not tried. Laura and I both were like, well, we don't even want to try because the truth is – is to get from that to the moment where they wear it on that red carpet and they're at that event – it's like if you're not committed a thousand percent, meaning that we've always been there. If it's, you know, my sister will literally be, uh, you know, it to you the last moment, you know, a zipper could break last which minute, has happened to which us. has happened. Um, yeah, you know, if someone wants to change the way something fits last minute, you have to change it. And that's but that's and also it, the fun of it. Right. You know, but it makes isn't it there, exciting. Isn't there that kind of derby where... At the last minute, they could choose another dress, oh, too? Sure. Oh, yeah, of course. So I mean, also, you never before. tell anyone you've made anything because it never works out when, once you say it out loud. Well, so for, it's, it's, it's like a secret between yourselves to get to that stage, and then you just pray for the best. Well, think of the reality. The reality is, let's, let's just say this. You're in the Oscar campaign. Let's say we're talking about, like, you know, you're going to either – let's just make it that you're actually nominated for an Oscar, and you have a stylist. Your stylist, unless, you know – they have, they to, have have to have a backup, even if they say – a lot of times what we will say is, look, we're going to do this from start to finish, but we need to know kind of what's the reality. Are we at the top running? Are we – you know, and there's just – sometimes you're in the top running and sometimes there's a sly way this person tells you. You realize, wait a second, I think they just told me we're now not in the top running. <laughs> and then we have to talk about it with each other for about, you know, for the a next day, day or two being like, I think <laughs> that was communicated, but – Meaning that, you know, but even if you are the one that's like, this is the chosen dress, everyone loves this. It's still, I mean, I would think like if I was styling someone, I would make sure if something goes wrong, there needs to be other options. So it could just be that someone, even if you have all those guarantees, someone could pick something last minute. And it's, I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, I've never been in in a situation where I would have so much attention placed on something I'm wearing, so much attention on me. And as we know, like the media and the public can be so, as much as they can be so wonderful and embracing, they can also be so hypercritical that I can imagine there's nights where I put on something that I thought I loved that we made. And then I'm like, well, I don't really feel that great in this. And, you know, even just that last minute would mean a change. And there's been, you know, so I feel like 
you put so much effort into it. And now, especially now, more than ever, I feel like it's always custom. Like there's nothing you're going to do. I mean, sometimes people, I feel like Kate Blanchett will wear something that was like from the runway. But in, you know, and there are actresses that do. And for movie premieres, that, happens, not premieres, Oscars, that happens all the time. But a... for the Oscars, it's like everything we've done. Reese, In fact, I think every dress we've done for the Oscars has been custom. Have yeah. you ever not made it? On the actress, have you ever done it all the way and then not been chosen? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, that's happened but a few for, times for for premieres, for the Golden Globes, for the wow. Oscars. It has definitely happened, and it's sometimes pretty heartbreaking because you're just like, oh, it's just but it's you so know much what? work. You know, it's it's just a lot of work. So it does it hurts when you can't. That's the documentary is when you don't make it on. Oh, yeah, then be the... with the designers when they watch the Oscars to see what gets worn. <laughs> <laughs> That's the stuff like I That's wish. Next if we time. want to peel yeah. back the layer, we just need a shot of tequila. And then I'll tell you what really gets. Someone said to me once, I love watching these things with you guys. It's such a different perspective. Because, you know, at the end of the day, oh, you have – it's really – you know, I do think like there's been moments where you feel really heartbroken about something like that happening because of the amount of work. But it's not just us. You know, you feel it for your team that spent – Oh, hours yeah. working on stuff. The, 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 the hardest part is telling the team. That. You go, they didn't choose it. And <laughs> yeah. then it's just, you know, the hours that go into making yeah. those dresses. It's but it's just, you know, it's a perfect storm of different things happening. And sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's so organic and it's just about, I remember like when Greta um, Gerwig asked us, you know, they had us do her Oscar um, dress, not this year, but when she was nominated for Lady Bird. And it was just so, so great because we addressed her for different things, some, you know, different points. And um, but that was just a real kind of that process, I feel like, was just her wanting to wear us. And it was just that equation. And we Mm -hmm. worked on the dress and did it. And then sometimes you work with someone and it's like it becomes, you know, that's the beginning point. But then there's still like this stop, you know, like. You know, does the manager like it? Does the team? You know, there's a lot of things to consider, but you know, it's all understandable because there's a lot on the line for people, and it's not just necessarily an award. You know, there's Isn't it amazing. Yeah. It's like so far from the days when Sally Field went to like it's so crazy, to write. <laughs> yeah. the department store a day before and bought a dress and wore it. Now it's an incredible. It's a business, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. interesting because with. I look at it this from a different perspective. Yeah. So with Roma, yeah. you yeah. guys dress Yalitza, yeah. yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a big special moment, obviously, yeah. for her sure. and the, that special. movie yeah. and all of that was so special. But then you brought her back again for your yeah. lookbook. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was so great because I haven't seen her since Roma and yeah. since all of that. But then yet this is a relationship that you've now formed that you guys brought her back. Uh, that was one of my favorite personal – Like, I mean, yeah. it's hard to pick things, but – I would say that moment with her was one of my um, favorite kind of moments to have. There was a, just a magic combination that ha- happened. I think it was just such a tremendous – it felt also like the you know the film was so – such a, I think such an amazing film. And she's so amazing in it. And then once the dress was put on, it just was all coming together and it just felt kind of like the perfect combination – you know, of doing something. And mm-hmm. in a way, even though it was that in particular, you know, there was a lot of work that went into that. Yep. But it also felt like by the time it was done, pretty effortless, like it looked that way. I feel like that moment, and I think when we did um, Natalie's Oscar dress mm-hmm. for when she yeah. was pregnant at the mm-hmm. time and did and won for Black Swan, that was really um, a special moment. Another moment. Yeah. When do you guys disagree? Like, how does, how do you, how does your collaboration <laughs> work? Oh, we kind of usually... Hammer that out with a small amount of bickering, and then someone <laughs> says, "You're right." We we have a we come from a very similar perspective, so um, our our I guess our shared language is very like a, a good starting point. So if someone is feeling very strongly about something that feels new or different and pushes the boundary, then and it might cause someone to say no right away, but then. We're so good at saying, well, we said no really fast, which means maybe we have to think about it. I think that um, in general, the no is a either a really hard no, like that's a terrible idea, or no, that makes me feel uncomfortable, which is usually the one you want to take. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's good to be two people because we're constantly talking. We talk about an idea incessantly. Um, and we talk about things in the middle 
you know, driving, you know, we had to drive to Santa Monica today and we got to talk about so much, maybe more than we would have had we been in the office and we're sitting down because suddenly you're available to, you know, people to ask a lot of questions. So our dialogue that is continuous allows for the no to not be as difficult as maybe if you just presented an idea in a boardroom and someone could say no and then walk out the door. Mm-hmm. Like, if I say no, Kate's going to ask me about it seven well, times in the next two hours. <laughs> Eventually, I feel like we're we just cha- like, we, oh. we get the yes out of each other. This is what our normal fights would be. Laura will say, okay, so um, don't, don't forget tomorrow we have lunch at, you know, 11 with so-and-so, and then we've got, you know, three thing, you know meetings and a collection review. And I'll say, I never okayed scheduling any of that. And she's like, I've asked you for three weeks if we could do it all on that day. So it's just like the Aquarius and, and Virgo. And then the morning of, Kate's like, I didn't I was like, okay. I've never okayed any of these things. So we. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Laura, will you just do them yourself? Or Sometimes, you, yeah, which yeah. often people go, where's Kate? And I go, well, <laughs> that's where the no came hey, in. <laughs> I just spent all my time watching Netflix yeah. in my spare time, which is what so I do when I get in my own zone. <laughs> right. So let's talk about some movies where our love of John Travolta, our yeah, love well, of like yeah. action films, yeah. love of John Hughes movies and all yeah. of that stuff. So is that how you guys stop thinking and actually relax? Because I know Sometimes, with any yeah. artist, yeah. like any creative person, their life is not normal. You yeah. don't have a normal life in terms of how other people view normal normalcy or whatever i don't even know if i'm making up words right now but that idea of never being finished when do you know something's done you're always thinking about the next thing and also with the fashion cycle how many shows you have to do and each of those shows are 90 endless pieces they all have to be different so there's so much going on in your brain like what is it that allows you to shut down and kind of just to be open things. to new ideas or well I know get, Laura's I, I love to go to the movies yeah, so I first. will go there are weeks I could go four nights in a row true we in Pasadena we have a great arc light great Lemley we have you know great video stores and now they're opening the video it's pretty close the, I just the saw movie that, theater the it's going to open in Eagle Rock so we have all these great things near us that are five minutes from the house so I go well I'm in my pajamas but I can go up to the movie theater and not run into anybody <laughs> and spend two hours and just relax a little. And sometimes that choice is wrong. So sometimes I'll see a really bad horror film and I go, this is giving me anxiety. I don't know why I did this. And sometimes it's wonderful. And you'll see, I remember I saw that, is it called Long Shot? The comedy with Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. Mm-hmm. And I laughed so hard. And I remember it was a really stressful week. And I just said, this is going to make me feel better. So no matter what, going to the movies is very relaxing to me. The smell of the popcorn when you walk in, you know, just the process of it. It's always been a favorite place of mine. And, you know, even the films that they'll put on Netflix, I'll go see them in the theater. So Mm -hmm. we saw The Irishman, we saw Marriage Story in the Lemley up the street. I like actually having access to things in my house. I mean, I definitely am the first person to be like, get in a theater and see it, especially um, for the films that, you know, or like real like cinematic experiences. Oh, yeah, for and sure. for me, which is most every film, you know, but uh, I do like, you know, before we were kind of talking about cheer, but I, before this show in particular is when I started watching that show oh, on yeah. Netflix. I watched it before our show. It really helped us. But cheer? we were saying, oh, yeah. yeah, we were like, we were better leaders because <laughs> I watched that. It was like three, I was finishing it right before I was leaving for New York. And I, I was just watching the, the coach on at Monica or whatever. And I was thinking, She's right. I need I need a plan A, B, and C, and D for, like, everything that could go wrong in the show. And if I've got these plans, I was like, I'm going to be able to, like, execute this show. And we had this one problem dress that just was, like, we kept fitting. It's just one of those things to put it – it's hard to explain. It'll sound overdramatic unless you're in this job. It just wasn't but working. It was, like, my favorite idea of a dress. And every time we do the fitting – it was just something was wrong with it. So eventually we were getting ready to It's leave. like your pyramid. You're yeah. trying to do your – Exactly. It's like, it's like yeah. Coach still Monica. something wrong. Something's quite not yeah. right. So I remember saying to Laura, I was like, okay, plan A is that we're going to fit this dress again and it's fine right before we get on a plane. <laughs> plan B, if it's not fine, we're going to rip these certain seams out. Plan C is if that doesn't work, you know, whatever. And plan D was we're going to remake, remake the dress and call it a day. And someone's going <laughs> to – Bring it on a plane with them, and it'll come to us the day before the show. And if we remake it, I'm pretty sure at this point we've fixed the pattern enough. Like, the remade version will come out. 
which is your last plan at that point because just the, everything's so mm-hmm. expensive when you're doing this. Like the fabric, you just don't want to have to do those things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we did go to Plan D, and the dress yeah, looked we perfect plan in the D. show. <laughs> this was the first time a dress hit Plan yeah. D for us. I think it, that hasn't happened since maybe the season I brought the whole collection with me the day before the show. Sometimes I watch things that make me very self-aware and nervous about my creative process. But interestingly enough, on this particular series i kind of didn't go on that path with it instead i watched it and it was very like motivating and i said you know we talked about it because everyone was watching it um you know just like making small talk working on the show and i was like i actually think it did help me process more of my nervous anxiety oh krista yeah can you make them have a cheer podcast i was talking about this with someone and i said i'd listen to a cheer podcast in the car well, I did. Monica, Coach Monica came on. Yeah. So Wait, you have to listen to. Monica, I was so obsessed with it that I, I chased her down and they were in L.A. for one 36 yeah. hour period and I Whoa. got one hour of it. Wow. And we had a, a long talk and she was amazing. Wow. And I was saying like I can't the French tip square. Oh, yeah. Nails. I would notice that a lot, too. Right. Would, so I'm waiting for that yeah. to, to make a yeah. trend. And then I was thinking just now popped into my head, how would Rodarte enhance the Navarro uniform? Oh, well, we already have bows everywhere, so yeah. I feel like but we're covered. you can covered. really do that bow because oh, I'm obsessed sure. with the bows. Me too. The bows is just the, such the focal point. It, it It's an amazing design choice. So there's so much to work with with that. that I know and then the outfits are secondary to that bow. The bow's mm-hmm. pretty – I remember I was actually – it's so true. Once the bow comes on, part of me is just like... I did see a really... I think the way they could be cute is made... made. You take the silhouettes or the silhouettes, so it's just the graphics going a little bit more old-fashioned. But I think that something maybe a little bit more old-school, less, less, less. You know, like mm-hmm. less... It's so funny that she's saying less because I was like, I think we need to like, like, go more. Tons more glitter on oh, the yeah, bows. Put, I was like, we just basically it. went in two opposite directions. So <laughs> I don't know. I was like, it needs more stuff on it. And Laura's like, I think less is better. But I think that the it's true. It's all about that bow. Do you think yeah, I could wear the bow or yeah. version of the bow? I yeah. always love that. But I would look ridiculous. But I feel like how can we? It's so good. The no, bow? but you so could cute, wear it. You'd be it so cool on it. Every era of history had a giant. My when my grandmother was um, young, I think she was six when she came from Italy to New York, and her there's a picture of her. You know, she's maybe about. Oh, it's pretty. Know, I don't know how old she has a bow this big on the top of her head, yeah, so and cute. it's the cutest photo. So I think it's just throughout you history in every great portrait. There's a big bow. I say if you don't know how to wear a bow, just you know, think about Coco Chanel. As long as you go in the category of like. Some black satin pearls. You can make a bow look for anyone. Work. Yeah. Because there's a you can take the bow or totally Dino. next le- level and do more extreme stuff with it. But I just mean like if you really is just as a starting point. Point that version of a bow is always really so cute. Good. All right. So we've talked a lot about your story and the journey and all of the highs, basically, that you experienced in this kind of unforeseen, you know, happy accidents, let's just call it that, where where when when people, I think the famous saying is luck is when preparation meets opportunity and you guys had these dresses and the opportunities came Mm -hmm. and you got these awards and uh, it was a continuation of accolades. But I also know in the span of any career, there's ups and downs. So various... Uh, things that didn't go well or collections that weren't received as you had anticipated or uh, how do you, all of it, we can go on and on and on. But what I'm really interested to know about for you guys is how do you navigate those downs as well as navigate the ups? Well, I think two things help. One is that there's two of us. So there's always a feeling that you can talk out your emotions with someone that's going through the exact same thing as you are with the same pressures or the same emotional highs and lows, and you can get some type of perspective. So if someone, if someone's feeling a little bit more low about something than someone else, you count on the other person to lift you up. And having a partnership like that is very beneficial in a world that has such extreme highs and lows. Now, fashion is infamous for having daily highs and lows. So you literally have to get the thickest skin possible to not worry about the things that go wrong because they go wrong in production. They go wrong when you're trying to make something and it seems like a small thing, but it's really a big thing. 
And then on the scale of doing a collection and having it not received well, that is a very hard thing to go through. Um, But we learned early on not to read reviews. And that's been beneficial because you don't get addicted to positivity. You don't get addicted to feeling really bad about what you've done. You always know what people think about what you've made from from just if you've done a show, the way people say congratulations. If they say, you know, their tone tells you. So if you're sensitive, you're going to know no matter what. Um, we had a an experience, I think it was our spring 14 collection. I like to talk about it now because it's so exciting it actually happened. But um, we were just, you know, feeling restless, feeling I feel like we were just like, I just, something's not connecting. I don't like the way people are talking about what we're doing, something like that. And I thought we're going to do a show that has nothing about Rodarte in it. It's going to be short shorts and really tight vests. And it's been a Los Angeles collection mm-hmm. and no one liked it except for, you know, a few cool people, right? <laughs> and literally 10 years later, it's just fashion that is everywhere. So it's re- it was so funny that it, it did feel like it was so poorly received, but it had longevity for us. It was very strange. But it came out of me as a frustration. But it let me get out some, you know, let me feel like, well, I'm not going to give people what they like if they don't like it. You know, it let me work out some some of my um, feelings that I had on the runway and then deal with it over time. It's been, you know, now it's a funny joke between our friends and it's made something that makes me feel good knowing that maybe people didn't like it at the time. So I could at least look back on it and say that was an important moment for me and it's useful. In the moment, it never feels good. You know, you make things so people can enjoy them and you don't want people not to like it. Um, and you want people to have an emotional reaction to what you make. And I think part of... But you can't always win. But also part of doing anything creatively and putting yourself out there means you're, you know, in a way you're... You do seek approval in a sense because yeah. if you didn't seek that on any level, then you would never show anyone anything and it could just be made and put in a box and you'd live your life and not need any of those things. So I think it's a hard thing to juggle when when you feel like there's a lot of accolades versus when you feel like no one gets it, no one likes it or, you know, and um, the thing that I think of often is I try to sometimes um, – think of the you know someone had said to me once well you know on the one hand I could you know if I get upset about maybe something didn't people didn't like it or you know you're feeling really low about something you've done then someone um, had said to me you know you could think about it the opposite way which is like you're in a position where people actually even if they didn't like it you have an audience that's willing to go see it and think about it and that's more than you can say for you know some sometimes someone might search for that their whole life so I kind of feel like in a way it's just the only thing that makes the thing that truly would make me the most unhappy is if I felt like we did things that were middle of the road which is like yeah people liked them it goes over well but then what do you have after that I mean the only solace I can take is when things we've done have not maybe been to their full potential or maybe they're the don't quite go or get received the way we want. Usually what I can take a step back from is usually I learn from it. And I think, well, down the line where, where I achieve something that maybe other people then say we love this or we get it, I always think, but it's just like those building blocks I needed. Like I needed to go and do that thing that you didn't get. And maybe it hurt. it hurts in the moment because – you know, I'm aware that it didn't go over well and it maybe isn't the thing that I fully intended. But that being said, it give, gives me or gives us building blocks into achieving something else. And I think the flip side is is that, I mean, if you don't have something to say, then you, then what's the point of doing any of this? And if you're going to have something to say, there's going to be people that like it and people that don't like it. So at the end of the day, I'd rather be that we have – we're trying something and it's not always going to work and it's not going to always be the thing that people love. But I feel like we would be miserable doing a different version of it. Like I I don't understand. Like sometimes I think you spend so long working on something. Like if you weren't – maybe we didn't – you know, it's interesting because on this last show I felt like we were very, very – before the show you do like a run of show. Usually in our process that run of show happens at the final hour, which <laughs> yeah. basically for anyone that – doesn't know what a run of show is. It's just, just the, the starting order. look through the end look and the order that it all goes in. It's like a dress rehearsal, basically. Right. And, you know, for some people, for us, it's about what's the story we're telling, 
you know, what what clothes, what sections the clothes go in. I mean, there's a lot involved in it. But that being said, this time when we did it, we were like, there's a beginning and a middle and end to the story. And we were very aware and we basically mapped out the run of show and it kind of changed over the days, but it was done in advance. And when the show actually happened, you know, someone said to me, like, did you read, you know, the Vogue review? And I said, no. And they said, well, they they got everything. Every moment you made a change, it was written in there. Like, this is where it starts. This is the moment everything changes. Then it shifts here. And I thought, oh, like, that was exciting to me just to know that as someone that's creating something that we had a very tight edit and we were very conscious of what we were doing and then it translated for the for at least that person in the audience that doesn't always happen a lot of times you do things and it just doesn't translate Mm -hmm. and you can either accept that maybe you'll get better (laughs) or you can then sometimes I go in my own little corner and I'm telling myself well they just didn't get it it's their problem you know they'll understand (laughs) in a few years who knows well and that's the case about a lot of things too so you know you you just can't you just you can't as I said earlier, you can't be addicted to the praise or to the negativity because you just don't know where something will land with you two years from now. So you could go through an extremely heartbreaking collection or project and then you realize what it means to you. And that that's important. So maybe the goal is to just trust your gut and to follow through on the things that feel fulfilling to you. I also think I take a little bit of ownership. I think as a woman making things, it's very important to embrace that you know, I feel like so many of my heroes that make things go out on a limb and things fail. Yeah. And then they come back and make great things. And they're not just given these, like, weird parameters of one shot. And I just feel like as a woman making things, it's like I have to remind myself, don't be afraid. Like, don't be afraid. You're going to go out and do things that people love and you do things that people don't like. And it's not always going to be a win. But you know what? You win just as much in what are perceived failures. And I feel like for people creating – but we grew up in a we did grow up in a great time period where Sonic Youth had number one song. You know, Bull in the Heather was a hit on the radio. You know, the the punk sensibility of saying speak your mind, have your voice was the thing that you would say, This is what I want out of artistry. This is what you strive to have. And I do think that has affected us over time. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking, well, if you leave behind something, you want someone to know your voice, not maybe an amalgamation of Uh, many other voices coming together that you've interpreted so I think that the hat you know not being perfect all the time also lets you kind of keep things exciting but it's also just too that it's you know I think for anyone that really wants to do something creative and put themselves out there you know obviously it's sometimes a lonely reality because you feel like you know sometimes you feel like when you're when people think it's a lot of people in the room when they think you're great and it sometimes feels like there's not as many people you know like you can just feel this weird energy thing so I think the thing that we've done that's been very beneficial to us is we've we live in our own like it's all about our friends our family you know connecting with people Laura and I insulate each other in the sense as Laura said we don't read reviews because as much as like you could say that the bad reviews would make you cry and question why you're doing anything, like the good reviews also can make I mean, you they a total. Can also make you say that you know a good review can also not get something and then say something that is makes you feel bad. That happens too. <laughs> oh yeah, or a good I mean, review it's could really also true. be just that at the end of the day you're like, okay, well I've got all these good reviews, so now I just live for that. And it's like, what are you going to do when you don't have that? It's just like you know you can't put all your your self worth can't come from mm-hmm. that. So. You know, especially, you know, we had an early learning example of this, which was our first collection we made. Like a review had come out and said we did our first runway show in New York and a review came out and said this is before we made the rule of not reading them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is when we made the rule. But, yeah, we made it early on. And the it review said, said oh, they just made they, a bunch of forget. No, they just make pretty dresses and they must not listen to iPods. And I thought, well, well we, who cares? I well, they were right. We didn't have iPods. We had one shared cell phone. We but what didn't know does what that was mean? going on. But it was funny because we the thing that we got really upset about, we read it. We were at some club in New York. We, oh, let's read our first reviews. We read it and we both, I started crying. I was like, I'm never reading these again. And, but the thing was, is for us, the fact that that person said we just made a pretty dress. 
See, that's the thing. Hey, for a lot of people, maybe that's what your goal was. Laura and I were like, that's not what those dresses were. <laughs> and then yeah. I remember I said to Laura, so I said, I'm so upset because I feel like, and I, you know, if I said the one, you know, the one last thing was, is there's a dress in this collection that the meaning of everything we're going to do is in this dress. How did they not see it? Well, it was a really big one that went into the Met right away. And I'd say that. Well, five years later, it ended up in the um, they did the history of Western costume at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it was the big guns, you know, like Balenciaga, Dior, major pieces. And they ended the show with that dress on a rotating man. It was one of the only ones that rotated. My friend went and shot it on film. And it was like. But that's when you say artistically, like, I guess you say artistically. I knew that dress was important for us, and it did become an important. And I think if I was, you know, even when we did our National Museum of the Woman, the art show, we pulled that dress out. So yeah. at the end of the day, it was kind of one of those learning lessons. Well, even if it, you know, it's you have to trust yourself. You can't, you, a lot of people are going to tell you what is or isn't right, what you should be doing. But the truth is the voices that I think rise to the extent that you're interested in them, it's because they have a perspective that comes from the individual. Mm-hmm. You have to get – you have to – I mean, that's – I'm a pretty big baby though, so I think staying away from <laughs> – but now with the internet, it's like everyone's it's open hard. to this it's all everywhere. the time anyway. Yeah. You can't put anything you know on the Instagram is people not as scathing as people talking about you, so I feel like no one's safe. It, yeah, it's just true. A, the uh, internet is a, a free for all of it's, you know, it's like the ocean the waves just keep coming yeah they just keep I coming. mean it is sometimes a good reality check though you put something up you're like this is my oh, most my- amazing thing I've done and people are like that looks it's like, like blah blah no, don't yeah, you remember like, we did these red and white dresses uh, and I remember oh yeah uh, it was from fall 2008 and someone kept saying this looks like Lady Gaga's meat dress you copied Lady Gaga's meat dress, and I thought, and we're like, we did these this dresses from like ten years, years, years ago. This. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's great. Well, um, thank you guys for coming in. It's so great to see you and to kind this of so much. Fun. This is so fun catching up. This is our stopping point from Santa Monica to Pasadena. Yeah, <laughs> it's, our, it's our our break. Well, thank you so much for doing break it. Break room. Thanks, thanks awesome. Krista. It's so fun. Thanks so much for joining me. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.